0: Okay, so this Sunday we come to the end of chapter. anybody? Seven, Seven, yes, there it is. Somebody's listening. (laughs) Chapter seven of Romans, in which Paul is building into this climax of acknowledging that he falls extremely short and that the law is not going to be able to deliver him. So then what? For that, we turn today to Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. If you are able to stand, please do so now for reverence to the word of the Lord. The authoritative word of God reads as follows. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is alive, that your word can speak to us and convict us and pierce our hearts. And it is for our instruction and it is for our good. As we realize that the law cannot deliver us from the penalty that it brings upon us, we look to you for mercy, Lord. We look to you for the grace found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Lord, this morning grant us your Holy Spirit, the understanding that we need, that we need a Savior who is able to deliver us from this body of death. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I've titled today's sermon, If the Law Can't Deliver, Who Will? The last two sermons, we treated the topic of the law not being able to deliver, That was in a two-part series that covered the previous passage. So now the question comes, if the law cannot deliver, then what or who will? Paul told us that the, the law is good. It exposes not only our sin, but for the Christian, the lifelong battle with sin. It is part of our sanctification. But that is all it can do. It cannot conduce any further help for us other than to point out our wrongs. So far in chapter 7 then, Paul has told us that the law is binding on everyone. Everyone is accountable to the law of God. He covered that in verses 1 to 3. Paul also told us that the Christian, when we become born again, we are released from the captivity of the law. From being enslaved to the sin that is exposed by the law that were verses 4 through 6. Then Paul told us that the law indeed is perfect and good. There's no arguing against that. The law is good and righteous and holy. Verses 7 through 12, he told us that. And then he tells us that when the law reveals sin, it delivers us a guilty verdict because we are still in a body of flesh and blood and bones. And there's a remnant of sin that remains within every Christian. That was verses 13 and 14. And then, the last two weeks, we've explored how in the Christian life, there will be a lifelong battle with sin, with falling, with failing. That goes against what we, in our most inner being, Paul's going to talk about that, his most inner being. Every Christian is alive in that innermost heart of hearts, and when we want to do what is right, evil is right there, and that is where we're at right now, this morning. So today, Paul presents to us a principle, a rule of thumb, if you will, that when a Christian wants to do something good, whether it is to change a habit, to become more godly, whether it is... To make a shift in choices or lifestyle in order to honor God and do what is good. It just seems that something gets in the way. The kid's starting school now, so what I was going to do, I cannot do. Or I was going to log off all my social media accounts. It's just a waste of time and distraction. But I have a couple new friends that just befriended me and they're my old high school friends. Whatever it may be when we're trying to change for the good, ask Christians not to become saved. No, that's different. Ask Christians to shift our lifestyle, our choices, our habits. Something gets in the way. And Paul is concluding chapter 7, basically throwing up his arms and saying, then who, who can deliver me from this body of death? It is a never-ending cycle, which Paul keeps failing and failing. What he wants to do, he doesn't do. And that very thing that he hates to do, he keeps falling into. Is that unique to Paul? I'm right there. I'm right there with him. But it doesn't stop there. Paul then gives us the encouragement. Who can deliver us? If the law can who will? He tells us, thanks be to God because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does not end in despair, Paul points to the one who has delivered him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, observations thus far in this passage. This is for our exhortation, I believe, strongly. Since about verse 7 or so, up to this f- finishing verse 25, as we will see today, Paul uses the reference of I or me in reference to him as failing, as falling into sin. He uses that about 30 times. He recognizes his sinfulness. And he says that he hates his sin. And he tells us that he has an utter utter inability to measure up to the law. Paul is saying... Me, I can do it. I'm guilty. I keep failing. Why is that an exhortation for us, my brothers and sisters? When was the last time that you and I reflected upon the goodness of God and it was a mirror to us to say, I have failed. Even as a Christian, I have fallen. Or do we hide behind the false impression that it's actually... I may not be all that great. But it's my spouse. It's my child. It's my work. It's my stress. That would be a bad place to start, my brothers and sisters. Are we better than the Apostle Paul? Paul's saying, I fail. I keep doing what I hate. May God then grant us a contrite heart to know that we, we, are the ones who fail. And as we approach our brokenness of this world, of our relationships, of our marriages, of our children, of our extended family, whatever it may be, we come with a contrite heart, not with a self-righteous attitude that someone is wrong in me and that's why my life is a mess. No. Paul says, I have sinned. I urge you this morning, brothers and sisters, to recognize that we are not better than Paul and we do not get a pass from God. So what is Paul Main's point as we look at the passage this morning? Well, Paul recognizes his inability to measure up to the law. But it doesn't end there. Paul then cries out that he knows he has a deliverer. He knows that he needs a savior. And he has a savior. So, in recognizing that inability of measuring up and crying out for a savior, Paul notes the following three things. First, he notes that evil is against him, evil is against him. Secondly, Paul notes that he is in a war with such evil. Paul is not keeping still, he is in a battlefield. And thirdly, Paul has the hope, the assurance that Jesus Christ has delivered him in that battle. So let us dig right in. First, Paul knows that evil is against him. Romans 7.21 So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul says, I find it to be a law. For our dear friends that prefer the LSB, I'll quote it to you. It says this: "I find then the principle that in me evil is present, in me who wants to do good. There's a principle, okay? That way we don't equivocate when Paul's referring to the law of God. Law, that same is the same word, but here the sense that Paul means it is: I happen to notice a pattern. I happen to notice a principle." When I resolve myself to change, to do something good, not to sin against God, something happens. Which obstructs me from doing what I know I should do. So first, we're going to take a quick look at the internal evil that rests and still is a remnant in all Christians. Let alone those that are not saved. They are nothing but corruptness inside So first, internal evil. It doesn't take much for us to be lured by our own desires and fall into sin. Jeremiah 7.24, it reads, and the context here is the people of God, after noting and being witnesses and experiencing the faithfulness of God, this is them, it says, but they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels, and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. If you remember a sermon ago, or two sermons ago, I noted that in the Christian life, we are all in a path of sanctification. If we are truly saved, we are moving in the same direction. Some of you brothers and sisters are moving faster than I am. I have to... Go to the right side. I'm in a slow lane of sanctification. Some of you are doing better. But all of us are going in the same direction. Remember I said, some of us sometimes want to put the reverse and go backwards. This scripture had not even been brought to my mind. And now it does. It gives a perfect illustration. And when we want to go backwards in our sanctification, we better be there for each other. We better be there. To encourage each other, to rebuke each other, to encourage each other in the fact that if we are being sanctified, we need to move forward and not backwards because of the remnant sin that remains in the stubbornness of our evil hearts and of wanting to do our own will. Let us remember that. Secondly, the way in which evil is in us, James 1.14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his friend's sin? His spouse's sin? No, by his own desire. My desire to follow the desires of my heart, to lust, to steal, to covet, to have an outburst of anger, to have an unforgiving heart. By our own desire. We live in a body of flesh that is constantly craving to be satisfied. My wicked heart is constantly wanting to be filled, not fulfilled. In our blindness, we think that filling that evil desire within us is going to fulfill us. It will not fulfill us. It will just demand more and more and more until we are driven to destruction. When we resolve then to do something right, to change this, all kinds of obstacles come in the way. That's the internal evil. Now, there's also the external evil that gets in the way. Let us remember that we live not only in the physical, but in the spiritual realm. There's a real enemy, a real Satan, who opposes the children of God. John 10 Verse 10, the first portion of that, it says that with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I have been in tempted scenarios or situations in which God has placed for me a way of escape. In my evil heart and mind, you know what I thought, that's just a coincidence just a coincidence God couldn't possibly care for me that much that is blasphemous territory my friends he will provide a way of escape so if you ever think is that yes that is the way of escape take it you have the power of the Holy Spirit to take that exit do it that's for our internal longings of our evil hearts now what about the external James 4 7 it says submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you an unregenerate person an unsafe person cannot do that this is specifically for the children of God that belong to God you have a different king you have a different owner and when that owner calls your voice calls your name When he offers a way of escape, Jesus says that his sheep know his voice and they follow him. By submitting ourselves to that call of God, we can resist the devil and he will flee. In our own, we cannot. When we submit ourselves to God, the devil is eternally outranked. He has no jurisdiction. Resist our internal sin, resist the external sin that gets in the way when we are trying to make a godly change in our lives. Specifically, this is talking to Christians, okay? Secondly, Paul is at war with this evil that comes against him when he tries to do what is right. He is at war. Romans 7.22, it says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So why is Paul in war with the evil that is right there with him? Primary reason is because Paul delights in the law of God. He says he delights in the law of God. Again, an unregenerate person cannot delight, cannot submit to the law of God, cannot agree that the law of God is good and perfect and holy. We have just witnessed an exposition by Paul in this chapter. That he knows that the law of God is good. He knows that. He agrees with it. He confesses that it, that it is so. And Paul knows that because he has an inner being. He says, in my inner being, he agrees with God. That inner being is what the Bible uses when it is referring to the non-visible. The invisible invisible man inside in which our true essence is formed. I call it our heart of hearts, the center of command of our soul. Paul says, in that portion of me that is alive, I agree with God. That is the description of the inner man that is alive. Eso in the Greek. That very inner man. So then, what about in our inner being, in your heart of hearts? Do we delight in the gospel? If we do delight in the gospel, as Paul did, we will have symptoms that we hate our sin. I am not happy. This is not where I belong. This is not normal. I need to get out of this. We hate it. And in doing so, we acknowledge it. And before God and before our brethren, we repent. There is something tangible. There is something we can see, we can perceive, and that we we see a change. That is a symptom that indeed we are children of God and we delight in our innermost being in God's law with delight in the gospel we are not happy with sin paul describes that inner man comparing it to the outer man in second corinthians 4:16 it says so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day That's again, inner self, your heart of hearts, the very essence of who you really are. That when God looks at you, he looks at you at your naked soul, exactly like you are. All this facade of we come to church and we have a good family. Nope, nothing. Your inner woman, your inner man is being renewed day by day, Paul says. So what is the status of my inner you? of my inner self, of of the inner you. What is it? First, is it alive? Are you a Christian? Any of these things spark a conviction in us? Or are we indifferent to it? Are you alive? Is that inner self in us alive? That's the first question. Paul is assuming that it is. He's talking to Christians. Let us take inventory of our inner self this very morning. Romans 7.23 moves on and says, But I see in my members another law. Here it's also referring to another principle, right? He says there's a principle that when I try to do something good, you know, everything gets in the way. Now he says, I see in my members another principle waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin That dwells in my members. So, the principle that Paul contrasts here is that his flesh fights against the godly desires that God gives him. Okay? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's another way of saying it. This is the constant war of the believer, this is sanctification in action. This is all of us going in the freeway of sanctification and we're looking around like, yeah, brother, we're all going, yes. Encouraging each other. This is an everyday battle. Let us fight. Are you fighting? Do you sense that you're in this war? Do you feel the weight of it? John MacArthur once mentioned of a preacher who went to a university. He was boldly preaching the gospel. And a heckler confronted him. In trying to make a smart comment, he said to the preacher something of the like. I'm paraphrasing. He said, you keep talking about the weight of sin, the weight of sin. What is it with that? The weight of sin? How much is How much is the weight? 10 pounds? 20 pounds? 100 pounds? He said, I don't feel nothing. To which the preacher replied, young man, does the corpse feel the crushing weight? of a garbage dumpster if it's placed on top of him. As the student thought, and he perhaps knew where he was going, the preacher continued, so is it with a person who has not been made alive by the Spirit of Christ. He does not even know that he's dead, let alone that he has the weight of sin that will crush him eternally. My friends, is our very inner self alive? And do we feel the weight of sin upon our lives? It is a daily war. And then Paul comes to verse 24. This is the high point of Paul's lament. And he says, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? In that war then that Paul is in, he realizes that he will not win in that body of flesh that he has, in that body of death that he has. And if Paul stopped there, we could see a picture of despair. All is lost, nothing else to do. Less than one second in the clock and the opposing team... Has a very large lead. Nothing. Just done. You're done. And Paul expresses his frustration that he has this death, this body upon him. He can't get rid of. Now, a few commentaries make a comment about that. The penalty for murder in ancient times catch somebody who murdered another person, they would tie the dead body to the murderer. It wouldn't take too long before the rotting of the corpse would transfer to the body of the murderer. And within some days, that person would die too. Some believe that that is the illusion that Paul is making here. Who will deliver me from this corpse that I'm strapped to? I'm going to die if nothing is done. My friends, you and I, in some way are tied to the old man, to the old woman, whose outer self is decaying and dying away every day. And if we are Christians, that is a weight on us. That is... Something that's strapped to us that we want to get rid of. I I don't want it. I'm not comfortable. Are we comfortable around corpses? Especially if they were to be tied to you? Paul says, who can deliver me from this? This is no way to live. And we get to the third point. Who has delivered Paul? Who has delivered Paul? Verse 7:25, the first portion of that says, "Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The one who can deliver from the punishment of the law, the one who can claim fulfillment to perfection to the law in all its demands. The one who can pay with His holiness, with His justice, with the fulfillment of everything that was expected. Paul says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has delivered Paul. Paul is not in despair. Paul is sad, frustrated, convicted, but Paul is not in despair. Let us not confuse that. He brings back the amazing truth that Jesus Christ has delivered him. Paul then knows that he is not the master of himself, his flesh cannot do anything. And he knows that sin is not his master either. He went through that, chapter 6, and even into chapter 7. Paul acknowledges that he belongs to a new kingdom and that he has been adopted by a new king. By a new heavenly father. Chapter 8 is going to talk more about that. Of us being adopted as sons. This is where Paul knows that his innermost identity is not as a sinner, but as a saint, as a child of God. Acts 27, 23, although not talking about that, makes this common. Is this Paul speaking as well? When he was going through some trials there. And almost in passing, Paul summarizes who he really is. Acts 27:23 reads, is Paul speaking, "For this very night there stood before me an angel of God." Here it is: "To whom I belong and whom I worship." That is Paul's true identity. He belongs to God Almighty. Whom he belongs to. He was bought by a price. And to whom he corresponds. He worships that God. This should be the case for every true believer. You belong to a different kingdom. You belong to Jesus Christ. And you worship him. So then, the answer Paul has given is that Who has, the law can't deliver me. Being Jewish can't deliver me. And he made the case against the Gentiles. Being a Gentile and even ignorance and trying to do good works, that won't deliver you. The answer is, Jesus, he has delivered. First, Jesus has delivered the believer from the internal desires that fleshly remnant in us to be slaves to sin and to be defeated by sin every time. Jesus has delivered us from it. Galatians five, there's many verses. I'll just quote one. Galatians five one, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Yeah, you were a slave. You were a slave to sin. Jesus has delivered us from that. So that we don't go and voluntarily put ourselves in chains to the old tyrant. Master that sin is. Jesus has delivered us from that internal desire to fall and sin. Secondly, Jesus has delivered us as believers from the external evil. Remember the internal evil that gets in the way? And the external evil. 1 John 3.8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then it says this in second part. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil okay so satan has been defeated that's a done deal and the ultimate depiction of that will be when he's thrown into the lake of fire at the end of time thirdly jesus has delivered the believer first and foremost ultimately from the wrath of god the wrath of god your biggest enemy is not yourself and your sinful desires. Your biggest enemy is not Satan. Your biggest enemy as a non-believer is that God is your enemy. God is your enemy. And for those that have trusted Christ by faith, and He has given us salvation by grace, Romans 5.9 says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God Jesus has delivered us from our internal wickedness from the schemes of the devil and his attacks but mostly from the wrath of God and Jesus has in another sense also delivered us in the here something's already done But also in the not yet, something is still yet to come, because things are still not right. We have all this brokenness and fallenness all around us. There will be a time when our bodies will be glorified, and we will sin no more. Such time is coming, but that is the not yet, that is still to come. So then Romans 7:25 closes with the final statement there it says, "So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin." Let us remember, this does not mean that the Christian has a license or an excuse to sin, because, hey, after all, Paul sinned, and I have a, if Paul had a remnant of sin in him, I mean, how much, how much more do I have? No. Paul already taught us that because grace may abound, it doesn't mean that therefore we're going to go sin so that God's grace... That's, that will be a, an indication that you're actually not even regenerate, if that is our understanding in the way that we operate. What this does indicate is the reality that a person who has been delivered by Christ will remain in a lifelong battle with... Sin. You're going to be in the fight. You're going to be fighting in the enemy's camp against yourself. No. You are in a daily fight. So, what are some final reflections then about the close of chapter 7? First, who will deliver you? What's your plan? Are you a believer? If you are, Can you claim that Christ has delivered you? Are you trying to work out your own way to make things better? Paul tells you you're going to encounter all kinds of difficulty when you try to do that. And remember, Paul himself, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he lays out that if it came to being saved by works or to being a good Christian, a good Pharisee, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, I have all of you beat. I can outrank you if you want to compare words. Are you more qualified than Paul? What is your strategy for deliverance from your body of flesh, from your body of sin? Secondly, what are you doing in the war with sin? First, are you aware that you're in a war? If you are, that's good. If you're not, we pray that you may turn to Christ so that you may begin to see the spiritual war that is at hand every day. Perhaps if you do know you're in a war, you're, you're hanging in there, you're being faithful, you're fighting, you're fighting the daily fight by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of us may be thinking, you know what? Yes, I'm in a war and I'm losing. This is bad. I'm on I'm, I'm the ground. It takes some humility to acknowledge and to accept that. Know that you have the spiritual resources, not only by God's Holy Spirit, but by His infinite wisdom in a local church that will walk alongside you. And if you are in a war, whether you're fighting diligently, or even if you feel you're being trampled and and beat, do not be dismayed. Jesus, the same triumphant king who saved wretched Paul and delivered him, and gave him assurance that he was delivered, is the same Jesus who either has rescued you if you are a Christian, or can rescue you if you are not a Christian. If you will repent and trust in him by faith. And thirdly, I think it's appropriate for us to pray. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're not a Christian, you should pray. Or even if you're not sure if you're a Christian, you should pray. That your innermost being would become alive so that you can see the beauty of Christ. So that you can see your wickedness and your sin and turn to Christ in repentance for forgiveness of your sin and become born again. You should pray. If you are a Christian, you should reflect upon God's goodness. You should thank God for making you a new creation. Not because you earned something, you were good enough, no, but because when you least deserved it, God showed you mercy. Thank God for making in you a new creation in which you can understand these things. And if you can understand these things and you know that you need Him, that is a great sign. And also pray for us to confess that we have fallen short. To recognize the fallenness of our flesh. And that our identity it's ultimately not in that fallenness flesh that keeps falling into sin. That's not going to end on this side of heaven. And because it's not going to end, we need resources. We need tools. We need weapons to fight that war. And in Christ, we have them. And lastly, for all of us, whether Christian or not Christian... To repent. To repent of our sin. Of how we fall short. And turn to Christ. Knowing that he has delivered us. That he calls us to obedience. That he calls us to own our sin. We're going to do that right now. I'm not going to send you to no. We're going to do that now. Which would be a good segue into the Lord's Supper. Let us pray now. I'll leave a couple minutes of silence and then I'll, I'll proceed to the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, as when we are confronted with sin and, I mean, just being real, even this quietness may be uncomfortable. May our sin make us infinitely more uncomfortable than that. Lord as we come to your table to the Lord's Supper let us not be a church that take this lightly Lord for this is an ordinance that you have ordained in which you invite us to commune with you as your children and in which you call us to fellowship into repentance and into the joy of communing with the King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. So we ask you Lord to give us a humble and contrite heart. As we do so. For when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. You were faithful. To rescue us. To forgive us of our sin. Oh how thankful we are for that Lord. You have delivered us from this body of flesh. From this body of death. That, spiritually speaking, is this corpse tied around us. Thanks be to you, Lord Jesus, for delivering us from that, knowing that we have one. How we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.